Hey, um, welcome to Generation Life Church, everybody. We are glad that you are here. Hey, is anybody glad to be in church today? Amen. Hey, welcome to everybody who is on Zoom as well. We love you guys. We're so glad that you guys are joined with us on Zoom, online. And um, if you're a guest with us here for the first time, second time, third time, I believe it's like after three times that, that they're part of the family um, to where we're like, all right, hey, why don't you come on over here and serve? Or why don't you come and just hang out with us? You're family now, right? You get your own glass of water now. You get your own coffee. Uh, up until that time, though, you know, you're a guest. But hey, if you are a guest, we'd love to meet you. Um, we have an orange tent right out here, and we would just love the opportunity to connect with you. If you would like to connect with us, we have a number here on your screen. Um, feel free to text that number and we'll be able to have any uh, information you may have um, about our church that you'd like to know. We can give that to you, and we'd love to get to know you as well. And so um, if you'd like to be baptized, if you would like to give, all of that is right here in this number. Um, hey, here's something I'm really excited about, and Easter is on the horizon. Amen? Easter is a amen. There we go. Easter is our Super Bowl of the church. And um, so next Sunday, we have a series of events that's happening. So next Sunday, we've got Palm Sunday. And I'm excited because, man, God has spoken a word to me. And I'm so pumped to be able to preach next Sunday for Palm Sunday. And then that following Sunday, we're actually going to be at Stillman's Farm. It's uh, Selah Farm for our outdoor Easter church service. Um, it's going to be under a big tent. So we're excited about that. We're praying for good weather. Um, we're praying for sunshine too, and we won't get sunburned at the same time. So we're going to have a sunrise service at 6.30 a.m. This is going to be a really, really special time. Um, we're going to have communion out there as well. And um, I don't know, but man, there's just something about watching the sunrise with the family gathered together and being able to be in the presence of God all at the same time. So um, if you are able-bodied, if you can set two or three alarms and uh, maybe give a little snooze and make it to 6.30, that would be wonderful. Uh, we'd love to see you there. I see some people are like, hey, amen. <laughs> um, and then we're going to have a breakfast. It's going to be a potluck-style breakfast, so we're going to have a lot of food there. We're going to have an Easter egg hunt for our kids. And um, there's going to be a golden egg there. It's going to be PK's egg, and there's going to be a $20 bill in that thing. So, uh, yes, yeah, so I just wanted to do something special. That may even encourage some adults to be like, I need to find this $20 right now. Um, and so uh, we're going to follow that up with a 1030 a.m. church service and uh, a baptism as well. And so if God has been speaking to your heart and it's time to be baptized and uh, to go public with your faith, um, if it's time to just say, you know what, I was baptized as an infant. It's time for me to be baptized as an adult in the name of the Lord. Hey, um, you can text the number there and, um, and be baptized. We would love to be able to do that. Um, hey, we also have a 5K run that's coming up. And that's for our brother, Kevin Dendy, who went home to be with the Lord. And in honor of Kevin, we're going to be having a 5K. I need to say run slash walk because not everybody's going to run. Crawl, right? Crawl. <laughs> Katie said crawl slash crawl. Um, I'm going to attempt to jog and uh, we'll see how far I get. If you see me walking, don't judge me. Uh, I'm trying, right? Amen. But hey, if you'd like to, um, to participate or if you'd like to volunteer, 
we would love for you to join and, uh, and be a part of it. It's, um, this is our really, if, if you think about it, it's our first generation life church being out in the community and saying, hey, this is who we are. Um, there's a church here in this community that loves this community and loves the Lord, and you're welcome here. Um, so it's going to be really cool. Uh, lastly, we have our women's ministry, and they are going to be launching... And we're pretty pumped about it. It is going to be April the 9th, and um, it's going to be at the Holiday Inn here in Hillsboro. And they have just asked, if you would uh, RSVP, that'll allow them to know how many people to prepare for. Um, women, we've been saying for a while, we've got something for you in the works, and um, finally it's here. And so um, you know how the ladies do it. The ladies know how to do it right, right, gentlemen? And so I know that you guys are going to have a great time. And so we would just want to encourage you, uh, be a part of that. I think it's going to be really cool. All right. So, moment of truth. Um, we are in part three, and this is our final, uh, of our series on living the blessed life. And, um, man, can we, just, can we just put our hands together for the preacher that came here last Sunday, Miss Molly Stillman. So I was speaking to her husband, John, and he was kind of like last week, he was like, man, it would have been nice if I could have spoken before her, and now I got to come after my wife. And um, so uh, John Stillman is a mighty man of God, um, Man, he is just an incredible, incredible uh, support, uh, whatever you would want to say. He's just, he is part of the backbone of this whole church. And um, he's going to be coming and bringing the word today. And I want you guys to make some noise, show your love for my man, John Stillman, everybody. Put your hands together. Thank you, sir. All right. Well, we're talking today to end this series about kingdom ownership and stewardship. Um, we'll be mostly in Matthew 25 if you want to get cozied up with that. But um, before we even jump into the scripture, I can give you a very simple illustration to explain the difference between ownership and stewardship. So I'm a financial advisor, which means from time to time, people give me their money to manage for them, actually. I guess you would hope it happens more often than from time to time. So let's say on a somewhat frequent basis, people entrust me with their money to manage. So like just this week, had a couple, they're retiring, took the husband's 401k, rolled it over to an IRA for me to manage for them. $650,000 now in this IRA. Now at no point during that transaction did I say, hey guys, thank you for the $650,000. I think I'm going to go buy another house with that money. Uh, now, I could have done that. I would have gotten a new house right up the road in Butner. It's called the Federal Correctional Complex um, because they did not give me $650,000. They entrusted me with $650,000 to manage for them. They retain ownership. I'm the manager or the steward. I'm not the owner of that money. So, so take that concept and apply it to the world as we know it. So the Bible makes it clear who owns everything. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it belong to him. So you and I own nothing. We don't even own our own life. It can be taken from us today. Um, he tells us to be stewards, managers, 
never to assume a position of ownership. Even from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2, what did he tell Adam and Eve? Tend to the garden, steward my kingdom, if you will. Well, what did he also say? This tree right here, don't eat from it. In other words, every time you walk by that tree, I want you to remember, you don't own this place. I own this place. So, very important that we understand the difference between ownership and stewardship. I love the definition that Tony Evans gives for kingdom stewardship. So he calls that the responsibility to faithfully protect and expand that which he's entrusted us to manage on his behalf. That's stewardship. So let's take a look at the scripture. Matthew 25, starting in verse 14, or as the preacher man always says it, 25 and 14. Um, So, for it, all right, stop. What is it? So if we go back to the very beginning of the chapter, the context of what we're talking about here, this is Jesus talking. He says, the kingdom of heaven will be like, back at the beginning of the chapter. So we're talking about the kingdom of heaven. And then at the end of the story, he's saying, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. So he's telling this story in the context of the kingdom of God, his ownership of it, our stewardship of it, and why it matters. All right. It's going to take a while to get through this if y'all stop me every two words to explain something. So quit interrupting. (laughs) For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. So how much is a talent? Some translations here say uh, five bags of gold, two bags of gold. Very bad translation, unless we're talking about a very big bag of gold. So a talent is roughly 6,000 denarii. So hopefully that clarifies for you what a talent is. No, so one denarius would be equal to about one day's wages for a common laborer of that time. So 6,000 denarii. 6,000 days labor. If we assume a six-day work week, which would have been their standard back then, six days on and then Sabbath, 6,000 denarii would be about 20 years wages. So the guy who got one talent got 20 years wages, two talents, 40 years wages. The guy who got five talents, 100 years wages. Okay, so that's how much money we're talking about that these guys were interested with. So then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with him. And he made five talents more. So also, he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. So you've heard this phrase before, right? Well done, good and faithful servant. You hear it at funerals. Oh, Harold loved to fish and he loved the Lord. And I just know last Thursday when he went through those pearly gates, the Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. And now he's fishing with Jesus on the lakes of heaven, right? You've heard this. Uh, Did you know that this phrase, well done, good and faithful servant, the only time it appears in scripture is in this story right here. Which means that the only people in the Bible that ever heard the words, well done, good and faithful servant, were these two guys who did a good job of managing financial resources. It matters. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. 
enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seeds. I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. And you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given, for to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So if you're a fan of socialism, you're about to have a brain aneurysm right now. <laughs> because what are we doing? We're taking from the guy who has the least and giving it to the guy with the most. Why? Because the master has entrusted us with resources. And he wants a return on his investment. He wants us to protect and expand what we've been given. And if you're not protecting and expanding, he's going to find somebody else that can do the job. So we've been talking about tithing these last few weeks, and I think it's easy to have this mindset of, all right, the tithe is 10%, that goes to God, 90% is mine. But that's not really the way to think about it. 100% of your resources are God's. And with the 10%, he gives us very specific instructions on what to do with it. Bring it to the storehouse. The other 90% isn't yours. It's just like that 401k rollover. It has been entrusted to you to manage on his behalf. The instructions aren't as clear. You have to have judgment and discernment for how you manage that 90%. But that's the task you've been given. So what I wanted to talk to you today about is just some practical tips for how to be a good steward of that 90%. Um, and I should also mention, you don't strive for good stewardship because you want the blessing that good stewards receive. Because anytime you're pursuing God's will, because you know there's a blessing in it for you, that blessing that you seek is an idol. And I sort of wonder if my mic shorted out there for a second, because y'all didn't really amen that like you probably should have. <laughs> I'll say it again. Anytime you're pursuing God's will because there's a blessing in it for you, that idol that, or that blessing that you seek is an idol. Amen. All right, good. So I just wanted to run through uh, 59 quick principles for, no, I'm just kidding. There's seven, there's seven principles for how to be a good steward of your 90% that you've been entrusted to manage. So number one, know your numbers. Proverbs 27, 23. Know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds, which is essentially saying in that time, manage your resources, right? That was how they measured wealth at the time. Think about how we're introduced to Job. How does the Bible explain how wealthy he was? He had this many kids and this much cattle, right? Like that was how they measured wealth. Some parts of the world, this is still how they measure wealth. You know, 10 years ago, riding around in Kenya with my man, David Muchai, he pointed out the window, he said, you see this man? This is a rich man. I said, we're like two and a half hours from where you live. Do you know that guy? How do you? Oh, he has two donkeys. He is a rich man. 
and you know, later down the road, uh, there's a guy with one donkey. He says, what about this guy? He's only got one donkey. He's, he's doing well. He has a donkey. And then a little further down, there's two guys pulling a cart themselves. He said, they are not rich. They are using human donkey. So some parts of the world still applies. It, wealth is relative, right? Like that's not how we measure wealth. Um, I do find that it's helpful if you maybe understand sort of globally where you stand in terms of wealth. One way you can figure it out, take your phone out. There's an easy way that uh, you can see what your wealth is like. So if you're holding a phone and you came here in a car this morning, you're in the 50% wealthiest people in the world, just based on that. Uh, top 10% in the world in terms of wealth. If you have a net worth of about $90,000, you're in the top 10%. So that would include the equity in your home. Meaning that if you bought a house like three or four years ago, it's probably appreciated enough in value in those three or four years that the equity in your home alone, even if you don't have any money, you had nothing in the bank, just the equity in your home would put you in the top 10% in the world. If you have a net worth of $873,000, which if you're 25, that sounds like a lot of money. If you're 65, maybe you're living in a $400,000 paid for home, retirement accounts, money in the bank, that would not be an uncommon amount of money to have. $873,000 net worth, top 1% in the world. So it's just good to keep those statistics in mind. Um, so know your numbers. Know the condition of your herds. I am constantly amazed when I have people in my office who, who just don't know what's coming in and out of their accounts. Some people will know what they make. They really have no idea what's being spent. I mean, they know they're not overdrawing their account, right? So there's at least as much coming in as is going out, but they don't know what is going out to what. So really important that you know what you're spending money on. There's this service out there. It's like a subscription canceling service. So you can pay these people to like connect to your bank account and tell you what you're subscribed to. So if you have subscriptions that you're not really using, you can cancel it. I don't understand how this service is needed. I, God gave us an app for this. It's called Your Eyes. You can look at your bank statement and see what you're paying for. I have no understanding of why we need a service to tell us this stuff. Um, in fact, I've seen a commercial for one of them, and the guy is like, yeah, I don't ever look at my checking account statement. I'm like, well, maybe you should try that. I, I, don't, I don't see what's so hard about this, but... Um, yeah, I see people all the time that for the life of them, if you gave them $1,000, they wouldn't know how to log into their bank account. Uh, so you've you got to know the condition of your plug. And three or four years ago, I was talking to a guy about potentially buying his business. And so I was asking about, you know, what, what's your sales look like? What's your revenues look like? Really good. Like, it's really been a good couple of years. Cool. Yeah, so, so revenue. What do you have coming in? It's strong. I mean, it's, it's the best <laughs> we've had in the last couple of years. Good. What is the data Sir, um, and so he did not know the condition of his herds and flocks. Clearly, um, it was going to be a short conversation. But a lot of people think knowing where your money's going uh, means you have to have a budget. And we got to say, we're going to spend this much on food, and we're going to spend this much on whatever. You don't necessarily have to have a budget per se, but if you'll spend even three months just tracking where your money goes... That would be an eye-opening thing for you. And then if you see, wow, I spend $217 a month at Starbucks, 
I mean, you can decide if that's the right use of that $217, but if you at least know where the money's going, you're now equipped to make that decision. Um, so, yeah, I would love it if you had an actual budget, but at the very least, if you'll just track, spend a quarter, spend three months looking at where the money's going, that'll help you out a lot. All right, number two is know your mission. Got to know your numbers, also got to know your mission. 1 Corinthians 10.31 so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. How do you eat to the glory of God? So I used to have a lot of heartburn about how much money we spent on groceries. Constantly drove me crazy uh, that we spend as much money on food as we do. Um, but now that we've sort of clarified our mission as a family and as a household, it doesn't bother me nearly as much because a big part of our mission is having people in our home to eat. That's part of our goal as a household. You know, so fellowship with other believers, discipleship of younger believers, outreach to non-believers, it's part of our mission. So I'm not going to lose sleep over how much we spend on food because it's going toward the mission of our house. Um, another thing that we're saving for right now is putting in a pool. Well, what does that have to do with the mission, so I can enjoy being out of the pool. I probably won't even use it that much myself. Um, is it so I can see Molly in a swimsuit more often? That's, that's more of an ancillary benefit. It's not really the reason. Um, the reason, to me, is that it fits perfectly in the protect and expand stewardship mentality, right? So. I want to protect my family by making our hub, making our home a hub for activity. And if I can protect my kids by having them more likely to be at my house under my influence instead of at somebody else's house under the influence of who knows what, that's a victory. That's protecting, expanding. Other, now it's a magnet for other people to be in our home, and so we can expand the kingdom from there. So, again, that's part of the mission, and I can justify spending the money on something like that because it fits into what we're trying to do as a family. So um, maybe you don't have a real clarified mission right now. I would say that's something you probably want to work on. If you're single, this is easy. You could come up with your mission in 48 hours. Uh, if it's a family, you know, it might take a little work and discussion, but dads, husbands, take a little leadership and create a mission, create a goal uh, for your household. So... Um, if you don't have something that immediately jumps out to you as this is my mission, maybe think, think back to the story in Matthew 25 where he said, at the very least, you could have put my money in the bank to gain interest. Well, maybe your job for now is just to give to missions. You're, you're putting money somewhere else where it's gaining interest for kingdom work, right? So William Carey, who was a missionary in the late 1700s, before he went to India, and he was really one of the first missionaries ever to go to India, said, I'll go down to the pit if you'll stand here and hold the ropes. So maybe that's your job right now, is just to be here holding the ropes by funding missionaries. If you don't know your vision, work on that. Number three, think long term. Proverbs 13, 11, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase. You know people who are always like trying to find the next big thing, Bitcoin or the lottery or 
whatever. I'm going to find a way to get rich quick. Almost never works. Pretty much always ends in disaster because wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase. Like think about Molly's story from last week. Big inheritance at 21, and it's gone in no time, right? Never got to practice with smaller amounts, and when you don't get to practice and you get the big amount, it's gone. We see it with lottery winners all the time, bankrupt within seven years of winning $32 million. Pro athletes, $18 million in five years, retire, bankrupt within five years. You got to practice with the little stuff before you get the big numbers. So um, just important to, to keep in mind the long term. So this is not an investment class. This is not investment advice. But I want to just give you an example of how an easel stands up. Yeah, why don't you just stand there and hold that? That'd be great. Oh, here we go. There it is. Quick reflexes. All right. So okay, this is just to help you understand the importance of growing wealth little by little. So let's take a Roth IRA. If you wanted to max out a Roth IRA, that's $6,000 a year if you're 25. And let's say for 40 years, you max out that Roth IRA. Don't stand there. So 6000 a year, that's 500 a month. And let's say you're just going to put 500 a month into this for 40 years. Over the course of 40 years, you will have contributed $240,000 to that account. But let's assume that that's invested in the market, and let's just assume average market returns over time. How much do you have at the end of 65 years? You put in $240,000, $500 a month at a time. At the end of 40 years, you're at about $2.1 million in that account, thanks to compounding and growth of your money over time. Now, what if you didn't start until age 35? And you did this for 30 years instead of 40 years. How much money do you have at the end of 30 years? Well, the knee-jerk response would be, all right, I, I contributed for 75% as much time, so I have 75% as much money. I've got $1.5 million, right? No. About 870000 is what you'd have. So that's the difference in 40 years of compounding versus 30 years of compounding. Most of my clients who have this kind of money didn't do it by selling a business and getting $2 million. They didn't do it with a big inheritance. They did it a little bit at a time, working in a factory, putting in a little bit of money every single month over time. So that from the real world, that's a great illustration of how you can build wealth slowly over time. All right, so what if you say, well, I'm not 25. I'm more, I'm retired. Like Coach K, I'm no longer working. Um, <laughs> You didn't really think I was going to not mention it all day. <laughs> so let, let's say you're at this end. You're already at some, some big number here, hopefully. Uh, look at Psalm 127.4. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior 
so are the children of one's youth. What's that mean? What do you do with an arrow? Maybe I should phrase that question better. Uh, because if you're like me, you're using your buddy's compound bow, and his arms are longer than yours. So you don't have enough flex in your left arm like you should. Your arm's too straight, and then you get string, string shock on your forearm there, and you end up with this cadaverous yellow bruise on your arm. But if you're somebody who's not an idiot, what do you do with arrows? <laughs> you shoot them up or out to a place that's way beyond where you can go yourself. So that's what this means. Children, when you instill them with values and beliefs, you shoot those values and beliefs out into the future further than you'll be able to go yourself. So let's think about that in a financial context. Let's say you're here, and you got kids or grandkids that are here. Well, what if, how, how many 25-year-olds have the $6,000 a year to put into an account like this? Not that many, right? So what if you say, hey, uh, I'll match dollar for dollar. If you'll put in $3,000, i will put in $3,000 to a Roth for you. Or two to one. You put in $2,000, i will put in $4,000, right? And so now we're, you're shooting the air. You're teaching them these principles of building wealth slowly over time. And not only are they going to end up with more money at the end of their life or at their retirement, now they've learned the lessons early along the way of managing a little bit and building wealth slowly. So when I say think long-term about your money, it doesn't just have to be over the course of your lifetime. It could be over the course of generations. So think about the little financial decisions you make now could have huge impacts 100 years from now if, one, you're <laughs> setting up the future generations to inherit money from you, but also at the same time teaching them these values and these ways to handle money. Number four is steward your time. Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. That's Proverbs 10.4. So you'll notice the phrase was, well done, good and faithful servant. It was not, you had a pure heart and the greatest of intentions, good and faithful servant. It was not, you had some really creative ideas and you were an outside-the-box thinker, good and faithful servant. Well done, active verb. Sometimes you've got to do stuff, quit thinking about stuff, quit planning, and just get it done. Stop wasting time. How are you wasting your time? Average American spends three to four hours a day watching TV. That is an embarrassing statistic. I can guarantee you that there's not 20 to 25 hours of redeeming programming for you to be watching every week. Um, <laughs> I don't know what the stats are for social media use, but I have to imagine it's even more hours per day and per week than TV. Um, don't waste your time. Now, you can be spending time. You can be busy. You can be doing things, but not actually in a productive way. So think about the, the lazy and wicked servant. He didn't do nothing, right? We've established that he had 20 years of wages. So that's like theoretically, physically a lot of money that he buried in the ground. He didn't have backhoes back then, so this dude's digging a hole, then watching, waiting for the master to come back. He's going to dig it up, clean it back off. He didn't do nothing, but he was lazy and wicked, according to the master, because he didn't spend his time doing the right things. So 
You can, you can even get involved in doing church work and call yourself busy doing that, but you're not actually doing the kingdom work that you should be doing. So be, be very careful how you spend your time. It doesn't have to be that you're working 70 hours a week, but at least spend your time productively. Principle number five is practice financial self-control. Proverbs 25, 16. Have you found a honey? Eat only what you need, that you not have it in excess and vomit it. I have always been delighted by this verse uh, because I love to envision that this was a big problem in ancient Israel, <laughs> that people were just finding honey and gorging themselves on it till they puke. And then Solomon, they, they needed Solomon, the wisest man ever, to come along and say, guys, let's maybe take it easy on the honey. Um, and then I wonder, was Solomon even that wise, or was it just that everybody in Israel is puking on honey, and then when he came along, he said, let's not do that. Like, this is the wisest man who's ever lived. So obviously or self-control matters. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Uh, it matters not just in food. We got to practice with Daniel Fast in January of that form of self-control. Well, financial self-control can be important too. So we just finished, we came off something called Lodo March. This first time we did it, I imagine it'll probably be a annual tradition for us. Uh, but essentially the goal was spend no money for the entire month of March. Um, obviously there are things you have to spend money on. You have to pay the mortgage and the electric bill and all that stuff. But we cashed in credit card rewards points to get gas gift cards. No eating out at all unless we had a gift card for it. We had a Costco gift card. Molly was able to make the entire grocery plan for the month work on that Costco gift card. Um, I was kind of surprised Amazon didn't come do a wellness check on us because uh, <laughs> usually they're at the house every day. And so, uh, and it's not for a particular, it's not like we're in some kind of financial turmoil and we need to save money. And it's not necessarily even that we're saving for something in particular. Yes, we're going to take the savings from March, and some of that will go to this church. Some of it will go toward the pool savings. Um, but that wasn't really the goal. The goal was just to practice saying no to yourself on things. It's good for us to tell ourselves no. It's good for the kids to see, hey, yeah, we don't just immediately go out and buy everything we want. And it was interesting, like I was making a list throughout March of, okay, when April 1st rolls around, here's the stuff I've got to buy immediately. And, you know, there's 10 things on that list by beginning of April, and I think I ended up buying three of them because the other seven is like, ah, I don't really need that right now. And so just a little bit of self-control, a little bit of waiting kind of reorients how you see what's a need and what's a want. Now, there were things like deodorant. I ran out of deodorant like five days before the end of the month. <laughs> And so I was at the point, I was like scraping the plastics, like scraping when you're putting it on. Um, I bought that day one, uh, April 1st. But um, it's just good. That's why I say practice financial self-control. It doesn't come naturally. So find ways. Maybe you're not going to do a whole month. But just take a week of spending only on truly needs and no wants. And just see how that changes. Yeah, it's a muscle. You have to work. So practice that financial self-control. Uh, principle number six is remember the source. So uh, a couple months ago, I was at Bojangles with Lily. I'd gotten a biscuit. She got a biscuit and fries. And I reached out at one point to take a fry, one fry, and she kind of like recoiled at first, right? Like, no, these are my fries. Really territorial about the fries. 
which is ridiculous if you think about it, because who bought the fries? Who could go buy her more fries if I wanted to? I actually have the financial resources. I could lay her down in the bathtub and cover her in fries from both of us. Not trying to brag. You can't hide money, but I could buy a bathtub full of fries if I wanted to. Right? So she forgot the source. She said, this is mine. Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 14. I love this verse. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So the context of this verse is this is right when the Israelites are going into the promised land. And God's saying, hey, once you get in there and you build your nice houses, the temptation is going to be for you to forget about me. Which, if you think about it, like, first-generation Israel just moved into the promised land. How nice could their houses have been? And he's saying, that shack that you built in the promised land will cause you to forget about me. So I think about this a lot as I walk around my climate-controlled home where I magically like, push a button and lights come on and I can change the temperature and we have refrigerated food. Could that home help make me forget about God? I would surely think so if a first-generation home in the promised land could. So the only way I know around this is to practice, is to practice active thankfulness. You have to create moments in your day where you're habitually thanking God for what you have. So for me, it's just, I'll tell Molly every single day, now, I love this place. Um, every time I look out the window in my backyard, whoever's around, Molly, Lily, Amos, I love this place. And that's just my way of actively being thankful. You could do something like put a little green piece of tape on the conditioner in your shower. And when you grab the conditioner every day, you see that green piece of tape, and now that's your cue. I'm going to spend the rest of my shower thanking God for the financial resources that he's given me. And after you do that, they say it takes 21 days to develop a habit. After 21 days, theoretically, you don't need the green tape on the conditioner. It just becomes part of what you do when you're in the shower. So create ways that you can be proactively thankful during the day. Final principle, take care of the little things. So this is a different parable that Jesus was telling in Luke, different from the one we read in Matthew, but the principle is exactly the same. Luke 16, 10 through 12, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? So there's a great story from Chick-fil-A back in the early 90s. So back in the early 90s, there were like two restaurants that were doing chicken sandwiches, right? KFC was still just buckets back then. So you had Chick-fil-A, and you had a company called Boston Chicken, which eventually became Boston Market, okay? So that was like the competition in the chicken sandwich space. And Boston Market had this really audacious goal. They wanted to do a billion dollars in sales by the year 2000. And this freaked everybody out at Chick-fil-A because they felt like Boston Market's going to really horn in on our business. So there was this big focus at Chick-fil-A 
of how do we get bigger faster? How do we get bigger faster? How do we maintain our market share compared to these guys? And so discussions went on for months, and it all culminated uh, in this big boardroom meeting. All the VPs and all the marketing people, like they were all bringing their plans for how we can get bigger faster. And they were all going around the table sharing their plans for how do we make Chick-fil-A bigger faster. And they got not even a third of the way around the table when Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, started just pounding the table, which is out of character for him. He's a pretty mild-mannered guy. But he pounded the table. He said, gentlemen, I am tired of hearing you talk about how we need to get bigger. What we should focus on is how we get better, and then our customers will demand that we get bigger. And so, of course, like, kind of took the air out of the room. Everybody sat back in their chair. But it completely shifted the mindset of Chick-fil-A from that point forward. So instead of focusing on getting bigger, they focused on getting better. By the year 2000, what happened? Chick-fil-A did a billion dollars in sales. Boston Market filed for bankruptcy. So it's a great example of sort of how leaders see things differently. It's actually a great lesson for our church, by the way. What can we do to focus on getting better instead of bigger? So are we loving everybody that comes through the door? Are we discipling younger believers? Are we bringing people along that are new in the faith? Are we spurring one another on toward obedience? If we focus on getting better, the community will demand that we get bigger. The focus should never be on getting bigger. So, again, it's a great example of how leaders see things differently. But really what Truett Cathy was saying when he says focus on getting better instead of bigger. It's just another way of saying, let's be faithful with very little, and eventually we'll be put in charge of very much. So the cool thing about Matthew 25 is that, yes, it's about money, but it's also about a lot more than money. So maybe you've heard of the five capitals, maybe not. So these are the things different types of resources that you've been asked to steward. So we have financial capital. That's obviously what we've been talking about today. Money, property, real estate, just your stuff, cars. Intellectual capital, that's your creativity and knowledge that you can bring to kingdom work. We have physical capital, your strength, your energy that you can bring to the kingdom. Relational capital, relationships with family and friends and co-workers, people in the community, your reputation, the way that you can influence people with that relational capital. And finally, spiritual capital. That's your wisdom and your ability to tap into the Holy Spirit's work in your life. So if you think about Jesus' entire earthly ministry, he was essentially trying to convince people to take the first four capitals and to leverage them, to cash them in for spiritual capital, right? So the rich young ruler, what do you say? Sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, and come follow me. For Peter, Andrew, James, and John, drop your nets. Stop being a fisherman, physical capital, right? Come follow me. Spend his entire earthly ministry trying to do that. And there, there's a hierarchy here. If you look at the, the entirety of Scripture, I think you can easily make the case that financial capital in the grand scheme of eternity is the least important of all these. So ask Stephen Hawking if he would have traded all of his millions for a body that worked. 
or the wife in the million dollar home who loves her husband to death but can't get him to stop cheating on her? Would she sell the million dollar home and live in a shack in the woods if she could have that relational capital restored? Ask any unsaved person who's ever died and gone to hell if they'd trade all of their worldly wealth for a second chance at getting it right on spiritual capital. So financial capital is the least important of all these. In other words, financial capital in any amount, $27 or $27 million is a small thing. And if you can't handle the small thing, why would you be put in charge of bigger things? If you want to be able to debate an atheist and you know, use your mind and your knowledge to be able to change the way that somebody thinks about God and eternity, that's intellectual capital. But if you don't know what's coming in and out of your bank account, why, if you can't manage the financial capital, why would you be trusted with that intellectual capital? Or maybe you want a house full of kids. You want eight kids and you want to raise up tiny little worshipers of God. But you never save any money every month. Everything that comes in goes right back out. You can't think long-term about your money. You can't be a good steward on that front. Why would you be entrusted with the relational capital of stewarding the soul of a child? You want to be recognized as a person who's just full of the Spirit. Man, she's got it. He's the Spirit of the Lord's all over that guy. But you've got $127,000 in the bank, and it's not earmarked for anything. It's a lot more than you need as an emergency fund. It's just there because you put your trust in money and you say, oh, it just makes me feel good, makes me feel safe to have that money in the bank. But instead of it collecting dust, some of that money should be put toward kingdom work. And if you're going to bury your talent in the ground, why would you ever be trusted to steward physical capital? So it's not about money, but it is about money. Because until you get that part right, that little thing right, why would you ever be trusted with the other stuff? But when we get money right, when we show the master that we're good stewards of money, then we can be trusted with things like relational capital and physical capital. Eventually, we can trade all that in, leverage it for spiritual capital. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with little. Now you'll be in charge of much enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this church. We thank you for the resources that you've blessed us with. We ask you forgiveness for the time that we've squandered the resources you've given us and we just haven't paid enough attention. We ask your forgiveness for the times that we've made money a God forgotten that it's only a means to an end, just a tool that can be used. Help us to never let money be the goal. Help us to always remember that it's just a tool. Riches I heed not, nor vain empty praise, thou my inheritance, now and always. Thy and thy only, first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Take whatever we have, it's yours anyway. Let us use it for you, as you'd see fit. Make us good stewards today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.